Welcome to Now Hear This Entertainment, a podcast for fans of the guests who appear on this show, as well as fans of music in general, and a show for musicians, singers, songwriters, artists, entertainers who want to learn more to help them grow in what they're doing. I'm your host, Bruce Wozniak from Now Hear This Incorporated. Check out nhte.net and be sure you are subscribing to this show and telling your friends to do so as well. Besides that website, you can also find the show on iTunes, which is Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, the new Google Podcasts app, Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn Radio, and on the Overcast app for iOS. Joining me today on location in Los Angeles, my guest is a director and producer who has won two Emmy Awards and was nominated for a third. He has produced and directed numerous network series, including multiple episodes of the Emmy Award-winning series Law & Order SVU and Blue Bloods. He distinguished himself early in his career with the popular classic series Picket Fences and Chicago Hope. Most recently, he directed the final two hours of the Emmy-nominated TV miniseries Law & Order True Crime, The Menendez Murders, starring Edie Falco and Heather Graham. He is currently directing a play entitled Finks, which runs for six weeks over November and December in nearby Venice, California. It's my pleasure to welcome to Now Hear This Entertainment, Michael Pressman. Thank you, Bruce. It's a pleasure to be here. Michael, it's very nice to meet you. Thanks for taking time to sit and talk with me today. Absolutely. Listeners, you know that every once in a while, I like to shake things up a bit to continue to make things interesting and bring you different voices from throughout the entertainment industry. We have heard from guests on the show who have had music played in film and or television. Other guests have talked about being on the TV show Nashville, for example, even if just for background work. Back on episode 55, my guest was Roy Yokelson, who is an Emmy Award-winning sound designer, recording engineer, and producer. And then on episode 165, I talked with Emmy-winning composer Mark Wood, who is well-known as the Les Paul of the violin world. So today we have an Emmy Award-winning director and producer to talk about some areas that I'm sure we have not covered here before on NHTE. Michael, you've been working in the entertainment industry for over 40 years Congratulations on such Thank a long you. and successful Thank you. career. It, 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 it feels much shorter. Wow. You, know, you, you say 40 years, and I go, really? Well, and I was really? going to say, to stick with something that long, you have to be passionate about what you do, not only day in and day out, week in and week out, but from one project to the next, be it a TV show, a play, or any other art form, yes? Yes, and, and I find that I have to work from passion. So uh, when I am really... Uh, um, uh, spent and exhausted and tired and feel like I need to recharge, I, I will take a break. I won't, you know, go back to back. You know, um, I would, I, 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 I do it when the work comes and I'm excited. And as it has been for the last two or three years, I have been working back to back on projects. But um, uh, I also love other things um, like photography. I'm very big with uh, photography and uh, sailing and uh, going out to sea sometimes is a great um, recovery from the uh, unknown intensity of creating. It sounds like it. And, and really, really both sailing and photography, it's it's such a respite yes. from the demands and from being right in the pressure cooker. Right. Uh, but I will say that, you know, also since I, uh, my very, very first love was acting. And I went to Carnegie Mellon for theater, both in acting and directing. 
also fell in love with film as as a teenager. Um, I remember the very first movies that made me want to be involved with movies and make films, uh, whether it was um, Truffaut's 400 Blows or being 12 years old in a theater in a matinee of Lawrence of Arabia. And by the end of that film, I was transported to the desert in a way that I had never experienced in my life since then and till this day. Um, I, I, I get very excited by the artistic process. Well, and to say that 40 years has flown by and that it doesn't feel that long, I would think that that implies that it has been very enjoyable because I think when someone looks back over a long period of time and they say, oh, and what a long 40 years it's been, it's, it's almost a, a complaint that it has been an arduous right. walk for them. Right. It, it, it's not arduous for me. And in fact, one of my philosophies is I like to have a good time. If I'm not having a good time, uh, that's, when it's, that's when it takes long. The statement is, find something that you like to do and you'll never work a day in your life. And I right. think, and I think exactly. that's... Exactly, exactly. I remember once I had a bad experience on a film and uh, in the editing room and uh, I turned to the film editor and I said, I'm not having fun. What's going on here? I, I, I like to have fun. Try things. You know, fail at things. Um, there's a great quote from a, a, a wonderful critic director uh, named Harold Klerman, who was in the American theater and started the group theater back in the 30s. And there was a great interview with him when someone said to him, where are the new great plays? And his response is, where are the new bad plays? <laughs> he said, I, I, I learn. He said, from the, you don't learn from the good stuff. You learn from the bad stuff. It, that's the manure of creativity. So similarly then, with that story that you told about you remember saying to someone, I'm not having fun, do you happen to remember what you identified and said, okay, let's, let's do this and it will become fun again? Yes, it was, let's, it had to do with a particular scene where I had an idea to shake it up and the editor wanted to keep it the way it was. And I went, uh, it may be fine the way it is, but... I want to try something else. That's what the editing room is for. Mm. Now, on a movie set or in a television show, for example, that necessarily isn't the luxury. I can explain a little bit more about the art of television episodic directing because that, in a funny way, is the opposite of, of trying different things. That's about the art of intuitive, spontaneous creative decisions that have to be implemented quickly because you have eight wow. days to tell in one hour show. Wow. Uh, I'm going to give you my short uh, pitch on this one. Mm -hmm. um, making films, and I've made almost 10, I've made nine feature films, um, is like working in oils as a painter. There is a lot of time spent on foreground, background, uh, every decision you, you, you do with care. When you make a television movie or a television pilot, you're working in watercolors. You have to work quicker. Uh, you still have the time of, of analysis, but you're working on a smaller screen. When you do a television episode, it's a pencil drawing. Mm. There is an art to a pencil drawing. It is the uh, intuitive, spontaneous, immediate decision 
a simple idea executed. Wow. And when you do that, and I find that I, I, I have um, uh, a, a great uh, joy in working that way, is I don't see it as limitation. I see it as a, as a wonderful challenge. I like that. I like that. We talk from time to time in the show about how success means something different to everyone. We all have our own definition of success. To look at a recent example, you directed an episode of Law & Order SVU that aired at the beginning of October telling a very powerful story about the injustice of separating children from their parents at borders. So how does someone in your position determine whether a particular episode such as that was a success is it simply by ratings or is it feedback from the network or is it how the actors and the crew felt during production how you felt what is your barometer that's a very interesting question uh it starts with how i feel definitely i read the script and i remember turning to the writers and the producers and said this is a terrific script i said this this is really smart because we're telling a, a, a story from a moral point of view. The next challenge in doing that episode was I had to find the right nine-year-old girl mm. because it's about a little uh, Mexican girl who's separated from her mother at the border and how the SVU unit in New York through the Mariska Hargitay and, and her group find this little girl is she's, she's a runaway. And she's been picked up by a pimp in the city, and it's like sex crimes. Turns out not to be that at all. Turns out to be that she was separated from her mother at the border. Mm. She was taken by a foster family, and now they're trying to reunite them. So at the heart of the episode was the casting of this nine-year-old girl. And when we found the right girl, uh, and, and she was uh, beautiful, emotionally available, and... Uh, very, very um, uh, wonderful with direction. I was able to get the performance I wanted. Once I got that performance and I found the right mother, we had a great episode. Well, I know that songwriters have told me that when they write something that they just love, they don't care if it ever becomes a hit or even really sees the light of day. They know they've done some of their best work. So can the same be said by someone in your position that while it's nice to win Emmy Awards, certain projects just make you love what you're doing regardless of how many or, or how few people end up seeing that show, or is it different for some uh, reason? No, it, it's very similar in that uh, a couple of, of my projects uh, or films that I've made over the years have had a, a relatively small following. Um, however, that following has been very intense. So I made a film, I remember when I... Um, made a film called Those Lips, Those Eyes, which was about summer stock. I was 29 or 28. So we made it in 1979. I think it came out in 1980. And it was uh, critically very well received, but very poorly received at the box office. It was mm. a financial failure. But it had an incredible cult following. And I remember when we snuck the film at a preview and uh, the card response that they have with the audience was was very low and there was 40 percent that liked it but the 40 percent loved it if you read the cards they were and i remember saying to the marketing people well that's our audience mm -hmm. so it's not an, the obvious audience it's this 40 percent that absolutely love this movie i have received compliments about that film 
since, and that was now, that's almost 40, 40 years ago. Yeah. 35 years, years ago. Wow. So uh, that means more than anything. It's not about the box office success. Another film I made, which got pulled from the movie theater, is called Boulevard Nights because it was all about the Mexican American uh, experience in uh, East Los Angeles, has had a tremendous following in the, in the Chicano. East Los Angeles community, and now has just been picked to be one of the 25 films for restoration by the Library of Congress. Wow. And the film's having this incredible resurgence, and I made that before Those Lips, Those Eyes, and I was 27. Wow. So Amazing. Though, you know, there, there's no doubt, and I do have to say this, there is no doubt that you want as many people as possible to see sure. your work. Sure. But I'm doing a play now that is for the 99-seat theater, and probably if we sell out for the whole six- or seven-week run, uh, what, 5,000 people will see it? You know, but there's nothing like the theater. But you will still have great pride in your work, is, is my point, is that these songwriters are saying, these songs are my babies. These, these songs come from my heart. And so in your case, you're saying, I'm as proud of those films today in 2018 as I was back when I made them and they yes. weren't they weren't these major blockbusters yes. but it's it's the the sense of pride that you have in your own work as well as hearing those 40% yes. just rave about the thing yes absolutely i mean the the desire is to is to be is to move as many people as possible but the you, you, i i completely that's where I live, which is in the in the actual work. When I'm when I'm proud of my work, there's nothing more important. Yeah, and and nobody can take that away from you because yeah. you know what the product was. Yes, I had asked you if how you felt comes into play with evaluating something like a TV episode. I'm curious when you're on the set. I have to believe that what's playing out in front of you makes you laugh, or it makes you it moves you to tears during filming. But is there any part of that where it becomes, I can't get too caught up in all that, though. I'm, I'm in a business role there. I have to be objective about evaluating and overseeing too many aspects. There's so many moving parts. Because um, obviously you want the, you want the cast to, to draw out that emotion that you want the viewers to have. And so you're experiencing that as you're watching it unfold. But I also imagine there's an aspect of what you do where you say, I can't get so caught up in the laughter or the tears that I'm missing kind of. Okay. Um, okay. It's a great uh, subject because um, I studied with a, a brilliant film director who was my teacher named Alexander McKendrick at CalArts. And he had this great uh, point of view, which is the director wears two hats. He is subjective and objective. He is subjective in that he gets inside the scene, gets in uh, with the characters, and gets emotionally connected, and then becomes an objective viewer. Not the audience, but the critic to make Mm. sure the story is being told. So I pride myself when I'm shooting that as emotional as the scene is, I don't get emotional as the director. I stand and go... We got it. Yes, let's do it. Yes, um, and I I become the the piercing critic, and it's the same thing with comedy. If you are laughing on the set as the director, there's a problem. You have to be a, a, a severe critic of comedy 
and make sure that the points are being made. Now, I will say there's once when I uh, lost that control and I was with Richard Pryor on a movie and he found something in a scene that was so hysterical that and, 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 and I had been a very severe critic of him on the set from the standpoint of not wanting to laugh, but he got me <laughs> and he knew he got me and I would call action and I'd have to leave the set. And afterwards I went to him and I apologized and he said, oh, no, no, it's okay. It was like he knew he won because he was going, how can I get this guy yeah, to, exactly, to laugh? Exactly. You know? And I'm going, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not the audience. I'm the director. I'm not supposed to be laughing. I've got to have them laugh. Uh, I also had a scene recently that uh, stays strongly in my mind where Mariska Hargitay, who stars in Law & Order SVU, had this big emotional scene, and she was completely spent, and it was a three-minute take, and she was finished the take, and she was so proud of herself. And she looked at me, and I gave her this look like, I want to do it again. She said, no, you're kidding. You're not going to ask me to do this again. And I said, yes, I am. She said, are you out of your mind? I said, no, I want you not to have come to play this emotional scene. You you, you did it a little bit like you wanted to play this emotional. I, you don't want to have. She's come to be interviewed for a possible uh, 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 mistreatment of her own child, which didn't happen. And she gets very emotional. And I said, you don't want to let go. And it was like. I got it. And she did it again, and she was even better on this next take. Nice. Getting back to the Richard Pryor example, has technology changed enough to where, granted, you want quiet on the set, you want to have control. However, if someone is chuckling over here, and what's playing out is, and the listeners, you can't see, I'm kind of pointing in different directions in mm-hmm. the room that Michael yeah. and I are in. But is it to where... 40 years ago, yes, Bruce, it had to be absolutely positively, you know, can't pin drop kind of thing. And now maybe is technology different where it's like, okay, we still need that, but we have more control over the sound that. No, I don't think technology has changed that approach. I don't, you know, I mean, there is this whole thing now where you have monitors on the set and you have, you know, 10 or 15 people in another room watching these terrific monitors of a scene and and they can go oh that was great or that's or this but i don't look to them because um they're not my audience they're the Mm. producers the writers that you know they may have comments about the scene and they too have to stay objective um but uh it's it's a very important philosophical idea we're discussing which is our job is not to have the characters in the scene quote cry or the writer and the director and the producer cry. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But if we want the audience to be moved, uh, that's our job. So we have a job to do. Listeners, if you have been with me every week for quite a while now on Now Hear This Entertainment, then by now you probably know the setup that Michael and I have here today, which is thanks to Tascam, the DR44WL, two TM60 microphones. I'm wearing my Tascam headphones right now. And since we're talking about video, meaning television, I want to also mention the Tascam DR10 series. It's a digital recorder slash lavalier microphone combo that I use to capture the audio while a camera across the room records a video. I use it for when I'm doing speaking engagements. But I know back on episode 230 of this show, Biebs said that she is using that for music videos. 
So audio for picture is very much in Tascam's wheelhouse too. Check it all out at Tascam.com. That's T-A-S-C-A-M.com. Michael, before we get to this play that you're here directing, let's give the listeners some background on you first to put it in context. Your father was a well-known theatrical theater, director. Theater your, director your, and acting teacher in New York. Um, your mother was immersed in she, dance. She was a Martha Graham dancer back in the 30s and 40s. They, they all took, you know, my family came from Russia at the turn of the century with the Russian Grand Opera Company. Ah. My grandfather was a violist. My grandmother, uh, no, my great aunt was an opera singer. My great oh my uncle was a pianist. So, so there was never a doubt that that yeah, you would I get was, into the arts I yourself. Was, I was the I was in the trunk, ready to be uh, <laughs> uh, pulled out and get into the theater. Um, interestingly enough, my brother became a, a real estate attorney, so there is no uh, simple explanation mm. for uh, who does what. But I was exposed and it it spoke to me i i loved going to theater and movies as as a child growing up in new york now interestingly enough i didn't have a california hollywood life we grew up in new york city so it was really about the arts and not about making movies or commerce that came later for me when i went to film school and came to california and when i was in my 20s back in the 1970s. But um, I was exposed to a lot of theater um, and and uh, remember going backstage and that was always very exciting. And I once went backstage when my father was directing a play that starred Jason Robards. Mm. And to see him jump out of a couch at the curtain call having died of alcoholism and run backstage and say hi how are you was like at the age of eight years old was mind-blowing um so i had wonderful backstage experiences and and uh theater experiences acting as a, a child actor in several plays anyway i came here came to film school in in los angeles and studied at cal arts after if i'm if i may we have a lot of aspiring entertainers that listen to the show and we talk about a lot of guys and girls up and moving to New York, to Los Angeles, to Nashville to try to make it in, in music and acting and so on. And so I, I was wondering, because you are originally from the East, when you moved to Los Angeles, you did get your BFA in film from the California Institute of the Arts. But was it ultimately, look, if if I was going to make it in this industry, this is where I knew I had to be? Yes, Yes, and and I think that still does exist to a degree. And I tell people who, if they want to get involved in in film or in television or any aspect of media, you have to try out Los Angeles. It's still the center. Uh, Now it's it because of technology and the advances in technology, it can be done anywhere. But you have to kind of see what the standards are here and and what the opportunities are. Now I'll say back in the nineteen seventies. it was just as hard then as it is now mm, wow. uh, because I got out of film school and I did odd jobs for a couple of years. And then finally through another friend, another director from NYU film school, Jonathan Kaplan, who was working for Roger Corman, who was making these drive-in movies for $200,000. Um, I had a chance to get an interview and I had a short film from film school. So he hired me to direct a movie in Los Angeles for $5,000. And I got to make my first feature film called The Great Texas Dynamite Chase. 
two women bank robbers, uh, which has become a little bit of a, 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 a light classic. Uh, we got great reviews. I never saw a dime. I, I made my 5000 Um But that movie, and again, you know, studios were looking for young filmmakers. It was viewed by uh, an executive at Paramount Pictures, the late Don Simpson, who ended up becoming Simpson Bruckheimer and made all those big movies. And he called me on the phone. Uh, No cell phones were 1976. (laughs) I remember vividly where I was. I picked up the phone, hold for Don Simpson. He gets on the phone. He goes, we haven't met, but I just watched your movie, The Great Texas Dynamite Chase, and would you come in and meet? And I did. And they offered me the sequel to The Bad News Bears. And this was just a a few years removed from film school? Yep. Wow. I was 20... Five when I made the Great Texas Dynamite Chase, and so it was two years after film school. And um, as people said, "How do you? How do you? How did your career get started?" And I said, "Well, I hired myself because what happened specifically, because it might be important for people who are interested in getting into this business." Roger Corman didn't choose to make my film. He said, "Go out and raise the money, and I'll distribute it." Mm. So I okay. spent a year with another friend and who was um, David Irving, who was a producer from film. Four people from film school got together. We raised $200,000 and we made the movie. Wow. But I had a distribution agreement. So they were going to see one third of their investment back. So Roger Corman bought a movie for 130000 that we raised 200000 and, and this is at a time when there wasn't such a thing as crowdfunding. They right. couldn't ask people to contribute to a Kickstarter campaign or a no, GoFundMe. No, but this was... Uh, but <laughs> there was a thing called a four-to-one tax shelter. So what we were able to do is we were able to say to a wealthy person, invest 10000 you can write off forty. Sort of sounds like the movie The Producers, you know. We, we tried to we tried to make a failure, you know. If the film doesn't make money, you can write off forty percent of your four times your investment. But uh, it was it was pretty crazy, and we we succeeded in getting the the two hundred thousand dollars. Fantastic. Okay, now it's time for Bruce's bonus. This is a segment here on Now Hear This Entertainment, where I take off my hat as podcast host and put on my hat as president of Now Hear This Incorporated, giving a helpful tip for the listeners that are musicians, singers, songwriters, entertainers who are out there trying hard to make a go of it. Today's bonus is, you don't know who someone knows. You've heard of the Kevin Bacon game, right? I can personally attest to the power of connections and how small the music world is. If you make the right impression on someone, you'll be surprised at what it can lead to in terms of doors that will open. Before you're too quick to dismiss someone, remember that while you might not end up doing anything with them, if they have a favorable experience with you, you could end up doing business with someone they know. Be open-minded and remember the importance of relationships. It's even a part of how I've gotten a lot of the guests you've heard on this show. These connections can really get you far. And that is today's Bruce's Bonus. That's really great to know, isn't it? Very helpful, right? Bruce gives out a tip just like that on every episode of this show, and there's an easy way to get all those that he gave out over the first 160 episodes. The ebook series called Bruce's Bonus Book contains four volumes, and they're all available for purchase and immediate download at www.brucesbonusbook.com.
Order yours now for helpful tips that you can apply to your career right away. So, Michael, let's tie together now what we know about your family background that you talked about, and then Fink's, which you're directing here. Go ahead and tell the listeners what that play is about. I feel that I've sort of come full circle because this play, which was written by Joe Guilford, who is the son of the late Jack Guilford, the comedian who was in Funny Thing Happened the Way to the Forum, and he had a a big career in in comedy and um, in serious acting as well. Um, is about the blacklist in the McCarthy period. Uh, when I was two years old, and my father was a very successful live television director, uh, he was um, blacklisted and couldn't work in his chosen profession for 15 years because he had political left leanings. In fact, mm. he was a member of the Communist Party in the 1930s, which any liberal progressive person was it was the party of choice because they were think it was about unions and organizing unions and organizing for for uh, social welfare and and socialized medicine and voting rights for for black people and it was it was what the what we as a democrat are for today but it was also having to do with coming out of the depression um my father was then dra- drafted into the the war and fought fought in World War II and was wounded several times fighting fascism and Hitler. And after the war, there was this incredible period of uh, the Red Scare, which was that people who were communists would be wanting to overtake the government. And it's too long to explain the political <laughs> history of this, but the play is about sh- the, the artists who were blacklisted in the early 50s and couldn't work in their chosen profession because of their outspoken beliefs about, you know, civil rights, human, you know, their right to speak out. And um, it became, was a very, very awful time in our country. And I uh, presented this play to the Rogue Machine Theater Company and uh they agreed to do it, and we are now one week away from opening, and we're in rehearsals. And I will say honestly, the play feels like we're telling a story about today. Mm. Everyone comes away from watching a run through and says, "I feel like our 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 First Amendment rights are being compromised today," because that's what the play is about. And interestingly, I was going to say, did you take this on because it rang so true for you with regards to your father? And now here you are saying... Yes. I, I think... It's past we, and it's present. It's past and it's present. And I actually think... And it, it goes back to the very first thing we discussed about creating, which is, you know, is it something that ultimately you that comes from within? And I think I've had these situations in the past where something has clicked and is really successful and something has failed. And sometimes it has very little to do with your the creative process it's something outside in this particular case it feels like we may be hitting a nerve and that wasn't necessarily planned the play was done five years ago in new york in the middle of the obama uh, administration and people viewed the play as a piece of history Mm. today we're watching it with the trump administration and we're feeling like it's a story about today amazing it's a it's a, a cautious warning well see i had intended to ask you 
and I'm going to try to keep both questions on the table here. I had intended to ask you, and, and this I feel bad for it's like a what have you done for me lately? You know, I was I'm tempted to say, well, after this six week run of Finks here, what will you do after that? Do you know? Yeah, or is I, it a I, case I, of I can't even be thinking about anything else right now? I've got to put all everything I have into this play and I'll regroup once those six weeks are finished. Cause then you mentioned about <clears throat> sailing and photography and I thought, well, maybe he's not going to do anything. But the second question is if the play does so well over these six weeks, what, what could happen there? It gets well, extended. It goes yes. to another market. Yes. Both. Both. It could get extended. It could go to another theater. Um, it could be picked up as a possible television pilot for a mini series which is the, a possibility. I will tell you that. Um, he, listeners, he's not winking at me like, like, yeah. like you know, there, he he, there's something. But that might tie into, you started to say, yes. you do know what's, you do know what's yes. next for yes. Michael Pressman after this. Yes, I do. I mean, I then go to Law & Order SVU uh, in January okay. and in March. I have a screenplay that I just finished writing with my wife, who's a terrific writer. Her name is Maya Danzinger, and we worked on a screenplay together based on childhood experiences that we both had and we're in our just beginning our second draft I hope to shoot that within the year um, I don't think I'm going to do it this summer because I've got to get back to the sailboat but um, and, and, and by the way I'm not talking about indulgence I'm talking about the creative process that sometimes that sailing and going out to sea is actually a part of the creative process one needs to recharge. Sure, I see that. I see that. I, you you hear about in in the music industry, you hear about some songwriters that will escape to some cabin in the mountains where people say, "Oh, must have been really relaxing. Must be nice." On the one hand, sure, I can see that, but it was so that I could really kind of bear down on this next project right. and get in the right headspace. You know, I I have to say this. Uh, I I am sixty eight years young. <laughs> I feel like that great, but I don't know if it's Mel Brooks's line in the 2000 year old man. I'm 2000 year old young, you know, it's like, <laughs> but, uh, I will say that, uh, I had a great role model in my father because when he recovered from the blacklist and got hired again in television, he was already in his mid sixties mm -hmm. and there was very little work in New York and he wanted to stay in New York, and my parents were new, diehard New Yorkers, and they never wanted to move out to California, and my mother never drove, and they loved the arts. And he got a job directing a daytime serial, One Life to Live. Mm. And he directed it for 25 years, and he retired at the age of 85, getting up in the morning at 5 a.m. and wow. going to the set. Wow. And he turned to me and he said, you know, I have to tell you the truth. I remember him telling me this. He was 85. He said, I about about working on the show. He said, I, I can't hear them too well and I can't see them that well. But other than that, I can do this job. <laughs> but he said, I think maybe it's time for me to quit. So he left at the age of 85. Then he started acting on the show and then he did some theater stuff in, up until his early 90s. But uh, it was a, he was a great role model. He was not about ageism. It was not about being marginalized. He was always looking for something to do creatively. And forgive my ignorance, Getting back to Finks, when the six-week run is over, if it is so successful that it's going to be extended or it's going to go to another market, is it a given that you would continue to direct it? Okay, that's a very interesting question. People ask that a lot. 
you know, um, good. You made me. You made me feel better that yes. it's not a dumb question. No, because <laughs> because people ask me. So, are you finished directing when the play opens? Well, yes. Uh, my work as a director is all during rehearsal, tech, previews, and once the play opens, now it's the actor's play, and that's a very different process than making a film, where after you finish shooting, you live with the film in the editing room, mm-hmm. you deal with the music and the sound. Mm-hmm. Here, I do all of this now, and when the play opens. It runs without me. In fact, there's some famous stories about directors who never return to the play once it opens. Wow. But I, I, I like to stay close, but my work is done. Uh, if it moves, I probably would restage it for the new... For the new cast. Yeah. Or yeah. better still, maybe the same cast, but the new pl- uh, uh, theater. Maybe uh, okay. Theater. Okay. I'm talking today with two-time Emmy Award-winning producer and director Michael Pressman. Finks is running for six weeks in Venice, California at the Electric Lodge Theater. If you are in or will be in the Los Angeles area in November and December, do go check that out. We are barely scratching the surface with all that Michael has done throughout his career. Do spend time on IMDb to look through Michael's full credits on there. While you are looking things up, remember that our show website is nhte.net and that there are links there for various social media platforms that we are on as well as the different ways that you can listen and hopefully subscribe to the show as I listed at the very start of this episode. Please do click the subscribe button on whichever platform you use so that you don't miss an episode. Michael, I alluded to aspiring entertainers as part of the show's listening audience. I have to believe that you get absolutely bombarded with unsolicited scripts, show ideas, and so on. If, if I'm right on that, take us through it are you completely turned off when folks do that? Are there any that you ever do look at? Is there a right way for someone that you don't know to to get something like that in front of you? Talk about all that. You know, it's it's. Uh, I, I always try to remain as encouraging as possible. If if at this point in my life, I am more interested in developing my own work. So I will say to somebody. If they if I know them, uh, I I'm backed up. I will try to read your piece at some point, but please be patient with me. If I don't know them, I strongly suggest they contact an agent. But the big suggestion is, um, if let's say you're looking to get a movie made and you've written a screenplay, you have to do the legwork. You have to put some aspect of a package together. Uh, you know, if you were to contact my agent and say we have $4 million or a million dollars for this small independent movie, which is a wonderful screenplay, and we're offering the job to Michael Pressman, uh, it'll come to me and I will read it. And if I go, I love this script, I can go make this movie with you. But for me now, with limited time and energy to sort of say here's an independent screenplay i have to get behind it and try to find the financing mm, and da-da-da. i see. Uh, i'll do that with my own work at this point i see well since we talk a lot about music on this show and the big thing nowadays is everyone's trying to get film or tv placement for their songs what is the relationship between the director and the music supervisor or is it there is no relationship if someone tries to get their music into one of my shows they're wasting my time i'm not going to do anything with it other than at best say you need to contact the music supervisor i think the music situation is different you know if i if i've been if if i'm working on a film and i'm working with a music supervisor and 
I get contacted about, would you listen to my music? That's much easier than spending, you know, two hours reading mm. screenplay. And I can, I can see that in 10 minutes or if they, or if they, and, and, and in some respects I have to also say, and it still is the reality here, even more so than in New York, um, agents play a very big role. If an agent calls me and says, I have this young, or I have this wonderful songwriter who's written this song, would you consider it? I, I will. Uh, you know, the, one of the great stories, and I don't know if you've covered this one, is the, how, um. Um, what Amanda McBroom's uh, audition for The Rose. They were making the movie The Rose and she wrote a song and she got it to them and they listened to it and she performed it and that's the song that's in the movie. She wrote the, wow. the song The Rose and it was just her writing it on spec and sending it in. Oh my gosh. Wow. It happens. Listeners, if you are one of those people, meaning you're sitting and writing songs on your guitar, hoping to get them placed in film or television, I hope you're doing it the right way, but I hope you're at least writing them with a Boulder Creek guitar, not just because that's what I play, but in part because of the big names that play Boulder Creek guitars and because of, most importantly, how unique their guitars are. And keep in mind, by the way, that they do guitars, basses, and ukuleles, but listen to some of the recent guests that have been on NHTE who play Boulder Creek and them telling me about why they do. I will put links to some of those interviews on the show page for this episode and then look them up online at bouldercreekguitars.com. That's B-O-U-L-D-E-R, bouldercreekguitars.com. Michael, just a couple final questions. First, is it fair to ask which do you prefer working in film, television, or the stage? Or is it a case of they're too different from each other and each has its own pros and cons? Each has its own pros and cons. And I, and I, I love working in all the mediums. And I, I have one other comment I want to make. Sure. Because um, you were talking about the, the young artists. Um, and I want to make an, a, a, an analogy to something. I think it's what I love about sailing. And that is that you, if you want to get from the destination from A to B, but the wind won't let you because it's coming from where the destination is. You have to find a way to tack and go in opposite directions to get there. And, and the beautiful challenge of sailing is the challenge of one's career. That if there is an obstacle, you've got to find a way to get around it. And you've got to create your own path. And there is no um, map other than your uh, own imagination. I love that. I love that. That's a great analogy. Final question. You've worked with names from Dan Aykroyd to, you mentioned Richard Pryor to, as I mentioned earlier, Heather Graham, Edie Falco. You've mentioned Mariska Hargitay a few times, and of course, you've won two Emmy Awards. Is it possible to have a favorite story, a favorite moment when you look back on your career? Um, I, I have a lot of favorite moments. I have a lot, but you know, there is one that jumps to me, and it, and, it, and it's about directing and it was um a, a a moment that was a compliment but it was uh an insight to what directing is um i was doing this movie those lips those eyes and i had in the film uh a very famous uh acting teacher and director in his own right named herbert Berghoff, who, was, who started the herbert Berghoff studios and he was married to uta hagen and they were famous people from the american theater and Herbert must have been in his 70s, and I was 28. And he was very nervous. And 
his the wardrobe person had given him a a piece of wardrobe that 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 he was very uncomfortable in and he got very upset and I was trying to work this out with him and he said this I, I can't wear this I can't I, and he said I want to wear my own jacket and I, he pulled out his own jacket and I said absolutely of course and I turned to the wardrobe person I said let Herbert wear his own jacket and he put it on he felt comfortable and then he rehearsed and he pulled me aside and he said you did a very important thing and I went what he said you make the you, you made it a very safe place for me to work he said, I felt very safe. Hmm. And that's a very important job of a director. And I, I, I got a great uh, directing lesson while I was doing it, which is my impulse and instinct was to make it comfortable for the actor in that environment where everyone has their jobs to do. See, and I'm interested in the use of the word safe because nowadays in 2018, we hear safe environment we hear safe in the safety way whereas in that case you're saying it's comfortable and and that was more the way i thought you were going with it so it's an interesting word choice that he said yeah you made me feel safe but i think there was also a sense of comfort within that safety right well i and and he was referring to the idea that if you feel safe you can uh let your imagination go and not feel judged mm. Uh, which is another whole part of directing, which is to let somebody do whatever it is they want to do and not to feel like you're judging them, but then to be able to guide them. Well, and how interesting is it that that story began with he was in his 70s and you were 28, yeah. and he was the one that was nervous. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, Michael, this has been fascinating. Oh, Thank great. you so much for your time. I really enjoyed it. Me too. I was, again, like you you prepared me. Uh, it was going to be an in-depth, interesting uh, conversation, and it definitely was. And all the best with Finks. Thank you. Listeners, again, Michael Pressman. That will do it for another episode of Now Hear This Entertainment. My sincere thanks to him, director and producer Michael Pressman. Again, if you are in or will be in the Los Angeles area, go check out Finks at the Electric Lodge Theater in Venice doing a six-week run over November and December. As I said before, do spend some time on IMDb looking at Michael's full resume. Extremely, extremely impressive. And as I mentioned before, click over to our official show website, nhte.net, and hit the corresponding icon there to either engage with us on your favorite social media platform or just to find the option that works best for you to listen to this show every week, including hitting subscribe on whichever of those it is. Thank you ever so much for listening. I'll talk to you again next week on another episode of Now Hear This Entertainment. 